The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Beijing's crackdown on Jack Ma's fintech giant continues, but there may be some silver linings to the latest wrinkle. And what do a cigar spinoff at Swedish Match and carve-outs at Royal DSM have in common? Tune in now. Welcome to the Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you from London this week. Well, we're going to talk about breakups, carve-outs, and spin-offs. Some welcome, some not so much. In the latter camp, there's Jack Ma's financial tech giant, Ant. Beijing wants the company to separate its payments, credit scoring, and lending businesses, and it's diluting them with assorted government investors. But as Robin Mack tells Pete Sweeney in Hong Kong, these new stakeholders might be friendly, and the loan operation itself might even get a wider business remit as a result of this whole shakeup. So there may be some silver linings in this latest edict from the Chinese Communist Party. Back here in Europe, I talked to Dasha Afanasieva about two deals she covered that share a common thread. Holland's Royal DSM may sell its materials businesses to focus on health, nutrition, and bioscience. And Swedish Match is spinning off its cigar business, making it something of a tastier play on smokeless nicotine, which may also make it a target for Philip Morris International, she argues. Give a listen. I'm Pete Sweeney, and I'm here in Hong Kong chatting with our tech columnist, Robin Mock, about the travails of Jack Ma's Ant Group. This fintech giant already had its IPO sabotaged by regulators last year. Now it's apparently going to get divided up into different parts and diluted with a bunch of state-backed investors. Robin, what's going on? Hi, Pete. So this is just one of many new developments um, in this long-running Ant saga. So just to back up a bit, uh, in November, Jack Ma's fintech giant was supposed to go public in what would have been a $30, $35 billion IPO. Regulators stepped in last minute and basically put a halt um, to it. Um, and now Beijing has since you know, imposed um, just sweeping restructuring of Ant's entire business and business model. So the caveat is that you know this is all ongoing, um, and there's just not a lot of detail into what's happening. So it's very difficult to sort of confidently say what Ant might look like uh, one year from now. But there are some signs that you know we're getting some different clues from various things, and like you said, uh, including Ant having to separate its payments, uh, lending, and consumer credit. Uh, businesses, as well as bring in some state investors on that. So that's actually not a terrible thing, um, you know, from for several reasons. Um, the first is that actually Ant still gets to do a lot of these things. They just can't put them all together in one financial super app. So regulators, especially the central bank, have already made it clear that they are extremely uncomfortable with having everything on one app. Um, so the current Alipay app, for instance, you can pay for things, you can take out loans, you can buy insurance, you can invest in money market funds. And so it's the whole financial supermarket app, you know, that many companies actually outside of China aspire to. What do you think is behind the concern about a super app? I mean, it's convenient. It's good for consumption. People are shopping. They're buying Chinese stuff from Chinese companies using a Chinese tech. What, what's the... I mean, I have my theories, but what do you think they're concerned about? I mean, I think you said it. I think it's convenient. That's the thing. It's and, and it's not just convenient. I think it's too convenient. I mean, the fact that, you know, anyone can just 
go on in an app and within a few taps of a smartphone screen, you can get cleared for an unsecured loan and take out debt. And I think, you know, just from the macroeconomic perspective, it's quite clear that Beijing is very uncomfortable with how fast household debt and leverage and consumer debt has been growing in China. And a lot of it has to do with the proliferation of these online you know, lenders that have made it just really convenient. I mean, and the second issue is that Ant's business model currently, it's more, it acts more as a facilitator or a middleman. So it just doesn't really bear any of the risks. And I think that has also been a huge source of concern for a lot of regulators that, you know, it's just sort of seeing how fast Ant has grown. Well, yeah, I mean, I get part of that, I guess, if you're if you're worried about the debt. I mean, granted, most of these loans are pretty small short-term consumption loans, right? But but we, we've all seen the data about Chinese household leverage. Apparently, on average, the Chinese household is as or more levered than, than American households these days, which is quite impressive. But I mean, in that data is a lot of like mortgage debt, a lot, a lot of other stuff that isn't just like buying stuff on Taobao. So it seems a little bit facile to argue that the whole stress is coming from people buying too many things online through Alipay. Let's tie that in with with kind of what else is happening. There's there's a unit we haven't talked about too much yet, which is the credit scoring unit. And that's interesting because that's that's Ant's attempt to kind of build something like sort of like Experian that would help banks understand the borrowing profiles of people borrowing from it to buy stuff. And and really what's interesting here and the, the difference in the Chinese economy versus the states is that where the fintechs like Ant come in and provide a service. And the reason they're making so much money here is because the banks are very bad at assessing individual borrower risk, right? These guys grew up lending to state-owned enterprise with massive amounts of collateral. You know, Ant and all these guys have all this information about borrowers because they are associated with Taobao and, and Alibaba, which is the big e-commerce thing. So they can see borrowing behavior and repayment behavior and shopping behavior, and the banks can't. So that seemed kind of virtuous for a bit. And yet, here, the government seems to be particularly unenthused by Ant's participation at all. What's happening on that front? This is basically the secret sauce of Ant, right? Is because they have access to this trove of consumption data from all their users. So their users are, you know, they're young. You know, a lot of them don't even have credit cards. They probably, you know, are just out of college. So maybe... You know, they're just getting started in terms of getting a bank account or whatever. And a lot of them shop on Alibaba. Alibaba owns 33% of Ant. So this touches upon several different issues that regulators are becoming very uncomfortable with. The first is data privacy. So it's really not clear what kind of data Ant is using and whether or not this is from shopping or private shopping data from users from Alibaba. So that, that's one issue. The second is there's just a market competition aspect, right? If you are making payments and loans and you have all this data, I think it's just a bit unfair. Fair for them to point out conflicts of interest as well. Like what if Amazon was also running Experian? Exactly. <laughs> Evaluating the creditworthiness of the borrower, issuing the loan, and then facilitating the transaction both with the bank and with the merchant to sell the product. <laughs> I can see how people got a little nervous about that. But even so, this, this, so this new structure looks kind of odd. They, the central bank has been trying to come up with something that, that Ant would climb on board with. And this has been a long-running saga, right? They had this previous institution, well, it still exists, Baihang, which is controlled directly by the central bank. But they gave like small, a small token stake, I guess, to Ant and a bunch of their rivals 
to Ant's rivals in the fintech space, which they really seemed unenthusiastic about. And there's this big squabble or kind of passive aggressive argument that kind of went on over whether Ant was actually going to cooperate with this. But now they've come up with something new that you argue in your piece was actually a bit more in Ant's interests. What is the new deal? There's going to be a new joint venture on credit scoring. So Ant will have a sizable stake in it. But you know, Reuters is saying that actually there are some other local government-backed investors that will be in this joint venture as well. And that's actually much better than previous uh, reported proposals that had floated that had been floating around, uh, including the one you mentioned about Ant being forced to cooperate with you know rivals like Tenpei. So this new one is actually not too bad, just because. You know, having local government investors can be an advantage. This is the Zhejiang Tourism Investment Group. You know, they are from the same home province of Ant. So they look quite friendly and harmless. And it doesn't seem like this is a a government entity that can restrain Ant um, in any way, but at the same time can provide some policy cover even give Ant better access to central policymakers in Beijing. They may be state-owned enterprises, but they still make money. And we know... I mean, none of these are regulators. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what, what restraining, I mean, apart from diluting Ant down to what, 35% of this credit scoring? I mean, what, what restraining influence would they exert? I mean, they're Ant and, and Alibaba are like the star companies of the province generating tons of jobs. <laughs> I guess I just, it just seems incredibly easy to me. I mean, Maybe we should talk about what's happening on the other thing as well. Um, the lending business could be more of a money spinner. I mean, we, we know that like the payment side is not hugely profitable in terms of margins, but now, and now it's going to be separated. The app you buy things with and the app you borrow things with are going to be separate apps, but there's some upside there too. How, how is that going to be structured? Ants consumer credit business is actually its largest by revenue. It's, you know, much more lucrative for Ant. So this is probably the most value is in this business. It's fast growing, it's lucrative, very high margin. So what happened was that Ant's micro lending businesses are now being folded into a broader company that has a consumer finance license. So a consumer finance license in China is quite coveted actually compared to a micro lending one because it just has a much broader remit. Um, so consumer finance companies, they have uh, access to more funding channels so they can issue bonds, they can tap interbank markets um, and they can just sell a lot more stuff. You know, besides credit, they can also sell insurance products, also fixed income securities. Um, so this is actually quite a positive for Ant's consumer lending business. The trade-off is that Ant only owns 50% of this business. Um, So again, they are being diluted, but it seems like they are being allowed to do much more, uh, like what we're doing as well as much more. And here the the, the shareholder mix also looks a little odd, right? I mean, who who are the other, who's holding the other 50%? I mean, it's, I took a look at it and I, and I thought this is just, and the most bizarre mix of investors I've seen. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's we a couple of small banks. Right? Yeah, yeah, so like it's a couple of small banks, like the Nanyang Commercial Bank. It's got Cathay United Bank. Um, it's also got a Chinese uh, electric car battery maker, CATL. It's got a medical device firm. I mean, this is just a really bizarre mix um, of investors, which again, I mean, 
it doesn't seem like there are any regulators in there. It doesn't seem like collectively the outside investors are, you know, a force that can restrain Ant on this part as well. So it actually looks not bad for Ant um, because they get, you know, a much broader remit. Granted, they are being 50% diluted. You know, I thought it was interesting that Huarong, which has been this Chinese bad bank, this asset manager that has been just been getting bailed out, this huge appears to be in the mix. Um, and I think Nanyang is this, is this, is affiliated with Sinda, right? The other yes. um, one. Well, yeah. So I mean, the central government controls those, so presumably they can exercise some sort of authority. But um, on balance, not too bad for Ant if this is actually what we end up with, assuming. Yeah. Assuming that this is it, Rob, I'll ask that you. Is, that is a dollars. huge caveat. Yeah. <laughs> Assuming this is actually what happens, and this is kind of the end of the road for the crackdown thing, and this new configuration is, is going to keep Beijing placated. Like, can we actually say what the Ant IPO, assuming it resumes, what Ant is worth now, or are we still completely think, in the woods? I think it's completely in the woods now. I mean, we've seen a lot of different estimates uh, recently. Fidelity Investments had a couple of filings that show that they're valuing Ant at $78 billion, which is really low compared to, you know, the $300 billion plus valuation that, you know, was the number kicked around ahead of the IPO. Um, so that's, you know, and, and there, I've seen a couple of other analyst uh, estimates uh, in the $150 to $200 billion range. So it, it's all over the place. And I think there's a reason for that, which is that there's too many moving parts right now uh, when trying to value Ant. It's just quite difficult. All right. Well, I think that's all the time we have to talk about this now. I'm sure we'll talk about it again, though. Um, Robin, thanks so much. Thanks. So, Dasha, you wrote about smokes and flavors this week. Um, actually, they're, they're, they're two different things completely, but there's something that pulls these, these deals together, which is basically their corporate carve-outs. Let's go over cigars first. Right. So that's right. So Swedish Match, it makes these little nicotine pouches and tobacco pouches that you put onto your gums and get your nicotine fix. Snooze or something like that? Snooze and Zins, um, not to advertise them too much. And they have... We're chewing them right now. (laughs) Wait, I wasn't... Wait, where's mine? (laughs) I need it now. Um, So they've been on this path to becoming a smoke-free company. Years ago, they sold their cigarettes, and now they're selling their cigar unit, which actually we at Breaking View said they should. It's something we said they should do. And this is they make white owl cigars. I'm I'm guessing it's a low level, like not a a fancy cigar, and, and a white owl. Yeah, I think they actually had a luxury cigar business that they sold earlier on. So this is kind of, you know, but it's it's decent growth. Um, you know, it was doing okay. And uh, uh, rather than selling it, they're actually spinning it off. Okay, so shareholders uh, will get White Owl and game cigars in one hand, and they'll still have Snooze, this, this smokeless business, which you say is kind of in line with the zeitgeist around smokeless tobacco and, and nicotine products. Uh, there are, I mean, the big, the big read-through is for uh, Philip Morris International now. Yeah, so Philip Morris International has committed to getting half of its revenue from smoke-free products by 2025, which is actually pretty ambitious because they're only at 28% now. And granted, their uh, ICOS um, sticks 
are growing quite quickly, um, but there, you know, there's there's a lot of work that still has to has to happen. And the way to get there is through M and A. And Swedish Match isn't, you know, what's left of Swedish Match after the cigar sale is a lot more attractive than Swedish Match, including the cigars. Um, because it's all smoke-free revenue. Mm-hmm. It makes sense for PMI to, to buy it, really, because it's it's a fast track. It's not ideal, but there are many other great options. Like over the, over the summer, they bought this inhaler business, which they had lots of pushback on because it was essentially buying a business that treats some of the diseases big tobacco helped create. So if an emphysema patient might use or whatever, something like that, they have this inhaler, and it's sort of it's a bit of an odd thing if you are yeah you're yeah. actually the purveyor of the smokes that may have gotten someone sick. Yeah, because their logic was it, I mean it doesn't have to be lung disease, but it's stuff that you get through okay. medicine to get, uh, that is administered through your lungs. But it raised a lot of eyebrows. Uh, but still, that deal's going ahead, and that wasn't even very much revenue, so it doesn't help them that much. But there's yeah, he's got to get there through M and A. So Who's even he? though that's the CEO, that's the CEO, Jack. Uh, and even though uh, the Swedish match is incredibly expensive right now on the market. And the stock went up uh, on the news of the cigars. Exactly. Now. And it was already trading at sector beating multiples. But he might just go for it anyway because he's made this commitment and he wants to be, believe it or not, a wellness company. Well, interesting. Okay. And the, the other one you wrote about was a company called DSM, Royal DSM. Now, they're like a Dutch company that does flavorings and things like that, but they do other businesses. So it must be the other businesses that they're, that they're trying to get rid of. Yeah, it's this old school Dutch company that's been around for ages that started off with sort of chemicals for the coal industry and it's had been on this huge massive transition and right now it has this big flavorings business and it's been diminishing the size of its materials business. And the materials business would sell stuff that makes um, you know, the, the material used in cars on the one hand really strong but on the other hand really light and recyclable, say, or it makes... Um, the, the materials business makes ropes that are that just weigh break so you can go rock climbing, say. It's that oh, kind of materials okay. business. And but it's nothing to do with flavors, which well, is a pretty hot topic. No, I mean, there's, there's quite a few people. There's an IPO in the UN, I think. Uh, we were writing about a company that was going public that's, that's, that's in the flavors business. You've had, who is the big going? Is it uh, the Swiss one? Gavorden has yeah. been doing really well. And Gavorden's kind of, right now, the gold standard. Who knows if they can keep up that performance, but... Um, in terms of flavorings and tastes, it's kind of the multiple. It's trading at sort of 28 times EBITDA. It's where you want to get to. Uh, and I think 28 that's... 28 times EBITDA. Yeah, yeah. That's a pretty hefty valuation. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's, that's kind of what DSM is looking at and thinking, hey, we can do that. But they can actually do more because their flavorings uh, division is in a way even more appealing to the zeitgeist. Uh, because it talks about nutrition as well, and it's talking about how can we feed the hungry by, you know, growing animals in a better way. Um, oh, so it fits it also lifestyle. into this whole social include or health inclusion. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the new world that we're in—that's fascinating. So both of these are sort of driven a bit by um, by some of the zeitgeist that you said, whether it's climate change or health change or the transitions into the healthier living, and at the same time they help get the stock price up. Absolutely. And I think, obviously, Swedish Match is a funny one because they've chosen to go for a spin-off, so they still have to pitch it to institutional investors who are going to have 
varying degrees of an allergy to tobacco products, especially cigars, smoking tobacco products. It was an interesting line to go down. If you compare it to Imperial, uh, which in the last couple of years sold its luxury cigars business, they sold it to a private buyer. Um, well, I mean, it, there's something there's something transparent about that, at least. So, so the shareholder is going to say, well, you know, this doesn't fit with our ESG or whatever principles we have. We're going to sell that stock. We're going to keep the, the, the core, the rent, the rump business, or whatever you want to call it. I suppose rather than just selling it to some you know, private equity and it just vanishes into the darkness, lack of transparency. So maybe this is maybe this is the way companies will go in the coal business or in hydrocarbons and other businesses that are that are no longer viewed by investors as investable. Yeah, I think that that's a, definitely an interesting point. That yeah, there's a greater degree of transparency and you know the the spin-off will take with it the transparency and the other ESG aspects I guess that Swedish match has achieved all right thanks Dasha thank you Rob that's our show for the week Thanks to our producer, Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong, and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Bye-bye.